Hello and welcome to the Jones Chase podcast with your presenters Susanna Reinhardt and Shona Newmark. The views expressed are commentary rather than legal advice and for tailored employment law advice please call 0203 837 9914 or email us at info at jones My name is Shona Newmark. I'm here with Susanna Reinhardt. Hello, Susanna. Hi, Shona. Nice Hello. to see you. Yeah, <laughs> nice, to, nice to see you. So we're doing the case of Mr. Michael Daniels and uh, against the United National Bank Limited is one respondent, and the other respondent is a Mr. B. Firth. So Mr. Michael Daniels is the claimant, United National Bank Limited is the first respondent, and Mr. B. Firth is the second respondent. And Mr. Firth is the CEO of United National Bank Limited, and Mr. Daniels is their chief risk officer. So Susanna, why did you choose this case? Well, um, it's, uh, it's only an employment tribunal decision, uh, so it's not binding uh, on uh, on anybody, uh, but it's really uh, this is a couple of fascinating points to talk about, which um, I think um, it would be worth having a little chat. Uh, it's a really useful reminder for employers that um, they cannot safely rely on a defence that internal rules are not legal obligations, um, and we can look at that in a bit more detail. But um, it also uh, has um, a remedy uh, decision as well. Uh, and actually, for me, the remedy decision perhaps um, uh, highlights some really interesting points that um, employers can take note of. So uh, it, they're, they're two, two judgments. Um, one, the first one is fairly lengthy, um, but very well worth reading. Uh, and the second is a short remedies judgment. And often we find that cases, if, if, if the employer loses, that we never get to see what the remedy is and how the courts um, uh, apply remedies. So I thought it would be useful for us to talk about some of those points. So shall I just give a little bit of a bit of a flavour of the case and then let's have a chat about some points that you and I think are are. are particularly interesting um yeah so you've already it. yeah so you've already explained that mr daniels was appointed by um the bank united national bank as their chief risk officer uh, and he was responsible in his role for assessing and mitigating regulatory competitive and technological threats to an enterprise's capital and earnings his role was regulated um, and he was an individual uh, in his own right uh, as uh, accountable um, under regulations. So um, that put him in a it, it, he's in a in a quite a unique position um, in a highly regulated uh, sector. Uh, he was employed from the 28th of July 2019 until his employment was terminated by the bank on the 1st of April 2021. Um, the bank is uh, prudential regulated, uh, is subject to the Prudential Regulation Authority, um, and the PRA, short, has supervisory and regulatory authority over the bank. So it's a statutory body that was set up um, like the FCA. Its jobs is to regulate um, behaviour within the bank and to provide protective measures. Um, Mr. Daniels brought a whistleblowing claim following the termination of his employment, uh, and he raised as part of his claim several protected disclosures, in fact many, 
Um, uh, but in particular, one of which was including breaching the PRA rulebook requirements. Bank argued in the case that its own internal processes were not legal obligations. Um, uh, and uh, that is something that we are going to talk about. Um, the, uh, I think it would be fair to say, in summary, that the board uh, considered Mr. Daniels to be a irritant and someone who was over-engineering things uh, and that his written communications antagonised situations and people unnecessarily. Uh, in the judgment, the tribunal described Mr. Daniels as someone who would not let things go. Um, uh, and you, you could say in, in that environment, perhaps that's exactly the best type of person you should have uh, as a chief risk officer. Um, he certainly raised many breaches, including breaches about control failings, bypassing of risk functions, breach of the bank's risk management framework, uh, uh, amongst many other things. Now, uh, I think, Shona, that is our first point we want to talk about, which is um, uh, he was employed as a chief risk officer. It is his job to identify breaches um, of processes and policies. Um, and, and that for us means that, you know, is he by virtue of his position completely protected under the whistleblowing legislation simply by virtue of doing his job? Yeah, so it's a good phrase you've used. Yeah, it's a good phrase that you've used, completely protected because, um, with a whistleblowing claim, uh, the fact he is the risk officer, and as you correctly said, he has produced uh, copious reports saying these are the risks, these are the risks, etc. Sending those to the risk management uh, committee that exists, um, on which there are non-executive directors, etc. And so um, he gets through the first part of any hurdle for a whistleblowing claim, which is, have you made a protected disclosure? And the tribunal in this case looked at the reports that the individual had made to the risk committee, et cetera, to Mr. Firth, the CEO, numerous reports. In fact, one of the reports, Mr. Firth said um, to read it, he would rather slit his wrists than read the report uh, just because they're turgid. But Mr. Daniels did make these reports and those reports in and of themselves were the protected disclosures, which the tribunal held. So uh, an individual who has that role within an organisation, you're absolutely right. They're protected to that level where it's going to be difficult to argue it is not a protected disclosure. It's then whether he suffers a detriment because of that and or he's dismissed because of that, where it's not a slam dunk kind of case. That's where the employer has the opportunity to say, yeah, it is their job. They do have to point out the risks, but that is not the reason why um, they're being dismissed or they're suffering a detriment, whatever it is that's being al alleged or both. So I suppose the other kind of person that could allege this may be a health and safety officer. And yep. they point out the health and safety risks. Um, maybe your first aider points out the first aid risks. Um, you may be regulated under some other authority that uh, uh, says 
um, if you act in this area, maybe pharmaceutical, there'll be a, there's the regulatory authority there, the ABPI. Um, but it's the point that you made in, in, in your introduction for the case, which is, is a very good one. When do internal rules become um, uh, something that's uh, a legal obligation that yeah. then is the protected disclosure that uh, the individual can rely upon? Do you have a thought on that sort of tipping the balance of that internal rule with these regulations? They were the they are regulatory authorities, their legal obligation. What do you think is the tipping yeah. point? This case specifically, um, you know, I think the tribunal got their decision right in relation to uh, the in the sense of that they had had a, some, and uh, that uh, following a review um, uh, at the request of the PR, and they had to put certain measures in place. Uh, and this framework um, was created, uh, and um, uh, Mr. Daniels uh, identified on several occasions where the framework was. Uh, not being complied with, uh, and so uh, I well that he was successful in persuading the tribunal, and the tribunal accepted that that framework was implementing a legal uh, legal requirement. So I think that was satisfied. I think in the normal employment day to day environment, you know, we often see um, individuals saying that they have made a protected disclosure by saying that a company's failed to comply with its own internal procedures. Um, and I think, again, that will apply if the procedural policy being breached is one that is implementing a statutory or legal requirement. So things like failing to follow you know, data protection legislation or failing to follow discrimination, you know, anti-discrimination legislation like the Equality Act. Um, uh, or, or you know the rights rights an employee has um, to um, have a fair, reasonable disciplinary or grievance process, um, that type of thing. Um, so yeah, it's just a stark reminder, isn't it? The bank here tried to argue that these that the PRA rules were sort of guidance rules rather than actual legal requirements. Yeah, there's there's two other elements as well that. Um, have they breached it or are they likely to? Quite a number of the, the uh, protection or the protected disclosures made, it was a likely to or had failed to do various things. And then the other point was the public interest. Was, was it in the public interest? I think by virtue of being a bank and uh, the fact that matters related to um, uh, investments and or uh, various matters to do with Bloomberg's, um, they did say it was in the public interest. So that didn't seem to be a problem to Mr. Daniels um, in showing about this protected disclosure. But I suppose having made this protected disclosure and saying I was dismissed because of it and or I suffered the detriments and the detriments are kind of um, things like uh, this got escalated to the board. Um, I was excluded from meetings. It was held in the end that there were no issues and uh, no detriments that he alleges he suffered that were linked to the protected disclosures. But it was decided that the dismissal was linked to the protected disclosures, 18 of which he had made. And um, I just wondered from, from that, uh, that's what the tribunal decided in a very long judgment, as you said, to then the remedy that this chappie gets, because um, 
he is able to show that this is an automatic unfair dismissal. He has to do that because he's got under the two-year service. What do you think about the remedies that he then gets um, from the tribunal? Well, I, just before I get to that, I think what yeah. was really interesting about this was that uh, actually I think the the problem was is that in the January, he gets dismissed in March and in the January he has an appraisal. And in that appraisal, he um, is scored um, an A. A, yeah. And so effectively, they accept the bank says this is a very high scoring. Um, and then so uh, the tribunal says to itself, what happened between January, where you score an A, and then uh, February the 22nd, when the decision is made to, to terminate employment? And they concluded that in that period, didn't they, that he had escalated a number of breaches uh, and they well I think the bank probably didn't help themselves perhaps evidentially uh, but they were unable that the tribunal were satisfied that that probably was the, the 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 thing that made them decide he was no longer the right fit he was yeah. making life difficult for them and they didn't like it so I just I, I just think that's an important point because I wonder if they hadn't scored him a <laughs> when we look at remedy whether that would have really had a big impact um, in respect of remedy because um, the fact that he doesn't have two years service is is a key factor it doesn't mean he doesn't have an automatic uh, unfair dismissal but it definitely brings in arguments about Polky doesn't it so yeah um, I just talk about that reduction that they get so um, yeah. I, I, that was the first point so um, one of the things that the tribunal had to consider was what was the likelihood of the bank dismissing Mr Daniels in any event before um, uh, you know um, before he acquired the two-year service um, and they concluded uh, that there was um, a 40% chance that the bank would have dismissed him. Uh, and they came to that conclusion because they had evidence before them that the board had concerns about him uh, uh, that were separate to the breaches. And those concerns were about his ability or willingness to undertake tasks that had been asked him. And there were also concerns about his judgment and communication. Uh, and, and they concluded that also obviously had less than two years service. And so it was possible that the bank might have decided also they were coming to the end of this section 166 compliance process that they may have decided that they would terminate his employment. Um, uh, I was surprised, I think you were too, that it was only 40% though. Yes. I think, though, that, um, Mr. Daniels himself gives evidence about uh, his, uh, he wanted to stay, and they really accepted that he would not have left his job. He liked living close to work, he was living close to it. So that was a factor. I, I hear what the employer is saying, he's likely to go anyway, but um, Mr. Daniels is saying, well, I liked my job, and uh, actually, I would have stayed. And I think that A rating, is the very point the thing that uh, you meant mentioned earlier that point has been quite persuasive in that 60 percent then um on the other side that he was unlikely to be dismissed so that's yeah i think mr firth in giving that a uh wasn't able to manage 
to convince the tribunal why A was not inconsistent with dismissing him a short while later. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So, and, and I guess actually that's the other point, isn't it? Though, the, again, it brings us back, we raise it all the time with clients about appraisals. You know, if people aren't performing properly or they're not meeting all their criteria, it's really important in an appraisal to raise these things yeah. rather than just giving people, you know, um, a, a, a high scoring um, uh, rating. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that was that for me, that was an interesting point. I actually, um, uh, I think, uh, based on my views, I actually thought this was a case that a different tribunal, constituted tribunal, might have come to a very different decision um, yeah. in respect of the outcome completely, but also in respect of the Polky deduction. The other thing that I thought was um, pretty fascinating um, about the remedies, and I really do uh, encourage people to read it, um, was um, in respect to Mr. Daniel's claim for storage costs and legal fees in respect of him no longer being able to afford to pay for the mortgage on his fiance's flat um, and, um, and, and them having to, to then sell that. So, um, uh, and what, what, what really surprised me, Shana, was first of all, I didn't believe that you would be able to claim those kind of expenses because I thought expenses was limited to securing new employment. Um, but in this case, I said that they would have considered it, although it was an unusual claim, they just decided not to award anything simply because they had insufficient supporting evidence. Uh, so that was a bit of a highlight for me. I, I'm, I thought it was photocopying very basic expenses. I had no idea that you could claim the, the losses relating to where you lived, et cetera. No. Uh, yeah, I so that, that was an eye-opener. Um, what do you reckon about the ACAS uplift? Yeah, so there's well, an ACAS uplift. This person doesn't have two years service. So that, uh, that sort of reason for dismissal, capability of leak conduct, and, and the ACAS, offers, uh, ACAS uplift linked to it um, hasn't been triggered because it's not an ordinary unfair dismissal. And an application was made for a 25% uplift for the ACAS uh, failure to follow the ACAS code. Yeah, uh, and the tribunal um, said that um, the code did apply because it was a dismissal. Um, uh, he wasn't given the right to appeal um, uh, and so that clearly is obviously in a situation where you may have uh, grounds for an automatic unfair dismissal or a discrimination claim. If you failure, fail to follow the process, then it does uh, activate the ACAS code. Um, they decided, however, to only uplift by 10%, and that was they made that decision because he did not have two years service and they considered it was just an equitable to limit it to 10% in that case. Um, I actually thought that was helpful. Um, it's a helpful guidance, but um, uh, you know, we uh, find where employees have less than two years service um, frequently, you'd wonder why it would be worth offering them the right to appeal if they have no claim for unfair dismissal. It's a good alert, though, again, isn't it, to just recognising that you have to um, very carefully consider whether they have a discrimination or a whistleblowing or any other kind of automatic unfair dismissal type of claim. Yeah. And because um, this chappie was a high earner, 10% 
in relation yeah. to his losses was a, a, a significant sum. And also he gave evidence to say, you know, I've been trying hard to get another job, but I find it very difficult because my confidence has been completely knocked by what has happened. And also I've been telling new employers the reason why I was dismissed. And he was doing that because he wanted to be truthful in his circumstances. And that meant he wasn't the most desirable um, chief risk officer uh, for another um, company. And there's also in the remedies, there's a, uh, uh, so I'll step back a bit. When somebody has more than two years service and you're settling a claim, an amount, and you get a schedule of loss, amount for loss of statutory rights, the fact you're going to start again from day one on statutory rights um, and work for another two years before you have them, you would normally allocate £500 to, maybe a little, very insignificant yeah. sum. The 750, 500. Yeah. So um, the, the, the tribunal has referred to the fact that they're not awarding anything for the loss of statutory rights and alludes to that in terms of the ACAS code, but you are not getting the loss of statutory rights compensation um, and seems to suggest that that is uh, because he's not getting that because he doesn't have two years service, that um, it's right and proper for them to think about other things. I think goodness, I only ever allocate 500 pounds to that. And yet they seem, they didn't say how much it was worth, but they were commenting it, commenting on it. You didn't get this, but you will get this other thing instead. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I, yeah, I was quite surprised that they, they spent a lot of time on that. But I mean, it was a, I mean, I, I, I wasn't surprised because he didn't have the two years service. So yeah. um, being surprised, more surprised if they had given it to him. What I, I thought was, Thing is that they do give quite a lot of time in the remedies around the injury to feeling and in particular that he would have been distressed and uh, the dismissal would have caused him considerable anxiety um etc they only award him twelve thousand pounds though so when i was reading it i was thinking oh my gosh he's going to get about twenty five thousand pounds or something along that because it seemed as though they placed a huge amount of uh, of emphasis and sympathy with him on it and then um you know as we often find with these type of cases all discrimination claims actually the award of injury is never particularly generous i i completely agree with that even in discrimination claims it's often a, a figure in and around four or five thousand pounds and there have been a quite a few incidences of name calling and etc so i completely agree with that point um yeah. yes you're expecting it's actually it's an interesting judgment because quite often you're tr you're rolling down to see oh what did they decide about this this is interesting and then yeah it, the injury to feelings was a, a lot lower and no aggravated damages they said everyone had acted professionally in terms of the uh, conduct relating to the dismissal it might not have been um outside of the automatic unfair level but they acted professionally and also the the legal um conduct of the case itself was okay so no aggravated damages no and then the the uh, bank did try and also argue for contributory fault didn't they but um they got short shrift on that um it, which i'm not given the findings actually that that was the, that was the outcome um okay. so yeah overall um uh, i mean interesting in the sense of highlighting maybe more than the whole thing about you know enforcing the um uh, making sure that you know you can't rely on the defense that internal rules are not legal obligations is the fact that 
actually be very alert employer that any you're, anyone you're employing to manage risk in your organization may inherently automatically now by virtue of these this kind of decision if this is the way um judges are looking at it have um uh, automatic protection under uh the current whistleblowing legislation yeah but not complete automatic because it just gets them to the, is this a protected disclosure stage? So um, yeah, very, very interesting case. Thank you very much for introducing me to it. We will circulate it along with the podcast. Enjoy yep. your evening and uh, yeah, see you next time. I will. Thank you. Have a good time. Bye. And you. Bye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information about employment law, contact Susanna Reinhardt at susanna.reinhardt at joneschase.com or Shona Newmark, shona.newmark at joneschase.com. Alternatively, call the Jones Chase team on 0203 837 or visit our website at joneschase.com. Thank you.